Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last episode discussing the impact on the housing and purchasing market post-COVID-19. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or, as always, on the Go Loud app. And you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be continuing our series looking at life after COVID. We'll be asking how different areas uh, and also living might be impacted or changed post-COVID-19. And this week, it's the medical and health sector. On the programme, we'll be focusing on some of the changes that you could expect to see. Well, joining me to discuss the impact and possible change to the general practice area is Dr Mark Murphy, who's a GP in the South Inner City in Dublin and also a spokesperson for the Irish College of General Practitioners. Mark, first of all, thanks for taking our call today. Could you maybe talk us through maybe more practical changes that you've actually noticed in the first instance already during this current pandemic? I think before you talk about the changes, I think there's a there's a lot in general practice which is the same as it was before. And that's because people will continue to have health complaints. Um, the same mental health complaints and depression, anxiety, addiction is in society. People continue to have chronic illnesses and acute health issues like you know muscle pain or skin rashes, infections. Um, we still need to vaccinate babies. We still need to look after pregnant women nursing home patients that need to be seen. So those complaints will continue and GP practices remain open and we are still seeing people in person uh, and we're still uh, consulting, um, you know, as the first port of call Mm. for for patients in the system. But the difference is, is that there is certainly more remote consulting. So in my practice, we're still seeing probably, you know, rather than seeing 30 patients a day, we might be seeing, you know, potentially 12 patients or 15 patients a day. Um, Which is still a sizable drop, though. It's a huge drop. And we can talk about the business model of general practice, which has been profoundly affected. Myself and colleagues set up a new practice um, over a year ago. So it's very worrying times for our business. From the private side of our practice, we're getting less uh, patients coming in and less income coming in. But, but just from the social side of things, a lot of the strength of general practice is developing a social connection with patients and communicating with them, building trust. And that's harder when we're not seeing patients face to face. So we are um, you know, doing a lot more telephone consultations, uh, sometimes video consultations. Um, and that can be challenging because we can't physically examine a patient. Um, so... In, a, in that sense, general practice is a little bit different at the moment. There have been some positives, such as innovations to help us communicate with pharmacies. Uh, we're aware of these electronic prescriptions that are available. We can now email a patient's prescription to a pharmacy. So there are some innovative ICT solutions. Mm. Does this pandemic not show that perhaps maybe things in the general practice sector could have been we could do things better, we could do things more efficiently, that you know, it has sort of taken this crisis to see, as you, you talked about there, the likes of yourselves and maybe pharmacy working in, um, in, in tandem better? Yeah, I think, I think it, it, it's hard to look back because uh, we're still in the middle of the crisis, but I think some of the big ticket issues that we have to take from healthcare going forward is what are the new better practices that will make patient care 
improved, more cost-effective and make our jobs easier as frontline healthcare professionals. I think there are certainly better workflows and ways of working which Slauncher Care advocated and this crisis has just laid there because we've had to innovate on the spot. So definitely there are better ways of doing things. We need more care in the community and we need healthcare professionals to be able to communicate with each other uh, in a more expedient fashion. And I think this crisis has exposed that and has been a catalyst to develop some of those innovations. I think a, a more controversial um, topic would be that we know that a lot of healthcare, for example, the private hospital sectors, um, there's no there's, there's no activity really taking place there. A lot of the hospital beds are quiet, and uh, general practices have been quite quiet. So one side of that is that there is unmet need. Some patients aren't attending, and that's really important that patients attend mm. their general practitioner if they have any symptom at all. But equally, the other side is how much healthcare was taking place in the Irish healthcare system that was unnecessary in the past. And I think we have to ask that about the overuse, overtreatment, overdiagnosis that was taking place. And that's a really important conversation that will also have to take place in the future. Okay. Can I ask you about the, the current role that general practice is playing mm. in terms of trying to, you know, to, to deal with and, and to help out in the health service with the current pandemic? A lot of our listeners would be aware that, you know, maybe their own local GP or their own general practice is being used as kind of one of these community hubs. Yet we're hearing anecdotally in many parts of the country, Mark, that these community hubs are actually quite quiet. I think general practices, the actual practice where patients will go, it's a little bit different. So the GP will be wearing a mask. There might be only one patient in a waiting room, will be wearing gloves, and we're doing that to protect the public. So practices are open as normal and they're getting a little bit busier and we do need to be busier. But in my practice and in practices up and down the country, we're not seeing patients with suspected or presumed COVID-19 symptoms. So, for example, if a listener has a cough or shortness of breath or a fever, they'd call their GP and the GP would tell them to self-isolate. They might need a test if they meet the criteria. We talk about social welfare certificates. We might talk about how to manage their symptoms. But if the patient needs to be seen by a doctor, that patient would not go to the general practice because they could make, uh, I suppose, they could infect other patients and the practice staff. So that's the whole point of these community hubs, and that's where I'm working today. So we're seeing patients today who GPs have referred in the Dublin area to the hub. And I suppose it's a credit to the public health measures and to the public that we have flattened the curve, that the community hubs aren't as busy as we thought they might be. Um, They are more quiet than we thought, Mm. but they're still needed, They'll be continued to be needed over the coming months. And fortunately, because there has not been a dramatic surge, they haven't been overrun with work. But they, they're quieter than we thought. Uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah. But I suppose we have flattened the curve, certainly in the community. And obviously the level of community transmission has been reduced. But alongside that, we seem to have, you know, really kind of reached the peak and we have a problem in the likes of some nursing homes and in those sort of more long-term care facilities. Is there an argument to be made, Mark, for maybe transferring some of those kind of community hubs, the doctors, into help, help and work uh, to work and to help and to assist in the likes of the long-term settings? I think that's a really good point, um, Andrea. I, I think that this is a fast-paced, um, you know, rapid policy area, and we need our policy 
um, decisions to evolve um, as the crisis unfolds. I, I think the community hubs were and con- will continue to be a very important aspect, uh, an important policy decision. But as as you know, o- other areas um, arise, and obviously the long-term care facility issue, nursing home issue, and staffing nursing homes is their biggest issue at the moment. And I certainly think that there's a good argument for trying to tweak and evolve existing policies to more more pressing issues. And, and I do think over the past two to three weeks, clearly the nursing home and long-term care issue or the, the long-term care facility crisis um, and particularly our unwell staff members and sick nurses, um, we really need to free up nursing hours to, to, to staff nursing homes. So are you, are you saying, Mark, as a, I know you're a spokesperson for the Irish mm. College of General Practitioners, do you believe that the GPs have a greater role to play now in the, the nursing homes and long-term care settings? I would say that almost all nursing homes in the country are, the patients are cared for by GPs uh, and, and the nursing staff. So the health and social care is primarily delivered by nurses and then GPs would go out and provide the, the ongoing general practice care to those patients. And that is continuing to take place. I think on top of that care, we need to have, we need to consider the, the kind of crisis of COVID-19 and what, what that has done to, um, un- unfortunately, the, the residents in those facilities and then also to staff, particularly nursing staff. And I think that one of the main issues is that so many nurses have become unwell and they're also on um, leave because they've been exposed to COVID-19. There's a real crisis in staffing those hospitals from a nursing perspective. I think on top of that, do we need some sort of expert medical facility to go out to a long-term care facility to see patients as a doctor? I'm not so sure that's needed or not. We certainly need community hubs. But, but we, what we do need is a, an evolving policy um, response and I, and, and I think you know the Irish College of GPs mm. and GPs generally will be very open to what that would be. Okay, the the testing criteria, the case definition for testing has changed or broadened again um, as of this week. Mark, has that worked? Um, in in I, I can only speak from my from my own practice at the moment. We're we're not referring any more patients. I think your listeners should be relieved to hear that less persons are calling GPs to get tested. So there's there's a sense that the community measures are working and that less people have the clinical syndrome of COVID-19. Very few people meet the criteria for a test because resources are tight and we have to prioritise certain groups. We are still only referring persons in certain at-risk groups and healthcare workers. So most people who have, who have a fever or a cough or shortness of breath, they still need to call their GP and we'll, we'll talk to them about how to manage the presumed COVID-19 infection, but they probably won't be referred for testing. So actually the new criteria, whilst they're slightly wider, it still isn't relevant for most persons in the community who develop COVID-19 okay. symptoms. Just, I mean, I know you touched on this at the, at the outset, Mark, as well, but just, you know, on a sort of a final point for today, like we've talked and discussed um, the implications and rollout of this launch of care plan here on this very programme, you know, over a number of occasions, but we've sort of had a, um, a little bit of a 
kind of a mockdown of Slauncher Care in many ways kind of being rolled out during this pandemic, just in the sense that people are obviously not going to the hospital unnecessarily. They are using other sort of community hub settings and various different kind of other medical facilities that are in operation in their community. Is it time now to just look at that on a more long term basis post all of this? Yeah, and I think that's really, really crucial. I think I, I'm so heartened that, you know, the administrative staff, the managers, nurses, doctors in this country have, um, you know, put the you know, shoulder to the wheel. We stood up and we said we can deliver. And I think one of the best things about it is that we've done that in a fair way. So uh, in the community hub today, anyone can come here. It doesn't matter if you're public or private. There's no charge. And I think that sense of equity and ease of access is crucial to our response in COVID-19. And those principles of solidarity need to continue into our future healthcare system. So, I mean, Slauncher Care, um, you know, is the vehicle for change. It's what every political party has signed up to. And it requires um, a fairer perspective in providing resources for patients to access healthcare. And and an increased realisation that we need to finally create appropriate governance and also resources to provide care in the community by GPs and other professionals in the community. And I think that's also happening at the moment. And this is a real impetus, and things have started um, to, to really um, supercharge the Slaunch Care process. Dr Mark Murphy, who's a GP in the south inner city of Dublin and also a spokesperson for the Irish College of General Practitioners, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We are continuing our discussion today on general practice and the medical and health sector and how that might look after COVID-19. Well, joining me on the line is lecturer in health economics at UCC, Brian Turner. Brian, thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. Can I just get your assessment of the main changes that you've noticed, first of all, in the health sector over the past seven to eight weeks? Well, this was the, the, so the most striking thing, really, is how the public and private systems have been integrated uh, or are being integrated. Uh, so we've seen the, uh, or we will be shortly seeing the, the takeover of the private hospitals by the, the HSE. So, I mean, that, that's unprecedented. And I suppose it, it is a good sign in that state. there is great cooperation there between the public and private systems. So, I mean, that, that's something that's, that is probably the most striking thing uh, about the, uh, the health system over the last number of weeks. I mean, obviously, the other issues are... Uh, things like the um, uh, the, the fall off in de- in demand for services uh, for non COVID nineteen related issues. So I mean, so that is possibly a little bit worrying. And I know Tony Olhan uh, alluded to that a number of weeks ago after he was in the hospital himself uh, that he couldn't get over how how quiet it was in certain areas of the hospital. So uh, so that that is maybe a, a potential cause of concern. If you can just explain as well, Brian, the fact that there is obviously going to be a huge change in the sense that many of the private hospitals are going to be taken over by the public system. This is something that we have uh, thought for many years nearly couldn't happen. It's been something that's been discussed about time and time again. Why all of a sudden, in the middle of a pandemic, is this now feasible? Well, I suppose desperate times call for desperate measures in a certain respect. I mean, we, we are in in, in uh, un, unprecedented territory here. So I uh, suppose there, there has been a concern in relation to the capacity of the public health system. Even before COVID-19 uh, hit us at all, there was, there was concern about the capacity of the, uh, the public health system. And that's been reflected in the Slauncher Care uh, plan, the 10-year plan for the, the future of the health system. 
So as part of that and, and the related document of the, the Health Service Capacity Review, uh, one of the, the um, predicted increases in capacity was an extra 2,600 hospital beds. And another one was uh, almost 600 additional uh, private hospital, or sorry, hospital consultants uh, in the public system. Now, interestingly, by uh, sort of merging the, the public and the private systems, that's more or less what the HSE is getting in terms of additional capacity. So they're, they're getting roughly 2,500 additional hospital beds and around 600 additional hospital consultants from the private sector. Now, I suppose it's important to note there that Solange Care envisaged that sort of an increase in capacity with a private system running alongside it, albeit uh, you know, more separate from the public system than we've seen in the past. Uh, so simply you know, merging the public and private systems, yes, that would work in the short term, but longer term, that, that, that wouldn't necessarily work uh, in the way that Snodge Care envisaged the, the increase in capacity, because if the, um, the public and the private systems are merged uh, in the long term, then people are obviously going to give up their, their health insurance. Uh, and then you're going to see an, a significant increase in demand uh, for public health services uh, over and above what, what the additional capacity would provide for. And in terms of the kind of services that are going to be offered to uh, members of the public, I mean, a lot of the outpatient clinics and maybe perhaps um, those sort of procedures that might have been seen as not more, not at the very upper end, a very serious end, they, a lot of those have been cancelled too at the moment for people. So presumably there'll be quite a long backlog at the end of all of this. Well, yes, that, that is, again, a, a, another potential concern here. And I know that certainly when the, uh, the HSE and the, uh, the, the private consultants were, were um, negotiating their contract, that was one of the issues that the, the private consultants raised, that under the contract, they were supposed to basically close off the, the outpatient uh, clinics to, to new and existing patients. Now, uh, one of the things they were concerned about was, well, you know, if you have an existing patient who's coming back in for, you know, follow-up appointment, then they need to be able to, to get that continuity of care. So, I, I mean, obviously we haven't seen the, the, the final contract, but I presume that that issue has been sorted now. But certainly, if there is any fall-off in consultants, in the, even the public or private systems, seeing patients, then that, that could lead to, as you say, a backlog in cases. It might also be a, a problem in terms of, you know, if people are coming to, to see their consultants at a later stage, so after COVID-19 has, has passed, then their, their illness may have progressed a little bit uh, to the point where they need more intensive treatment. So that, that could be a, a bit of a, a worry as well. How do we get the consultants and the medical professionals on side with this arrangement? Uh, well, I, I assume that the, the HSE and the consultants have, have dealt with this issue now in, in terms of their, their negotiations. So that we, we haven't seen the, the contract uh, in its final form, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm taking it on trust to a certain extent, I suppose. Just as well, Brian, there's a couple of other interesting parts to all of this in terms of the, the reorganisation of services as they stand post-COVID-19. And I suppose in many ways we're, we're looking into down a, a bit of a tunnel here today where we're trying to figure out what the health service might look like, you know, at, at the end of all of this, whenever that may come. I mean, we've talked so much as part of this launch of care plan about the likes of um, various different services being, you know, um, administered or reorganised within local community settings and the, the whole idea of the primary care unit and the primary care centre and how that might operate to try and get people out of the hospitals and off the trolleys waiting on beds and yet in, in some respects that has kind of happened as a little bit of a default uh, through what's currently happening at the moment. Well exactly because I suppose people in, in many cases are actually afraid to go to hospitals lest they, they contract COVID-19 so I, I suppose it, yeah it, it, it's not necessarily the way that it was envisaged uh, would happen but as you say there, there certainly has been a 
uh, I suppose, a, a, a renewed emphasis on the primary and community care settings, which is, as you say, what, what Slange Care uh, envisages to, to, to kind of increase the reliance on uh, primary and community settings and reduce the reliance on uh, hospital settings. Now, obviously, in order to deal with that, the, the Slange Care uh, plan envisages significant increases in capacity at all levels, not just at the hospital level, as I mentioned earlier, but also in primary care. And, and, and one thing in relation to that that I think is very encouraging is the response to the Beyond Call for Ireland initiative. So we've seen over 72,000 people from all, all areas of uh, health service provision uh, responding to that cause. So in terms of getting this additional capacity in the medium to long term for the, the staunch care proposals, it is encouraging that so many people have that goodwill towards the Irish health system and that they do actually want to work in it if it's feasible to do so. So uh, I think that is certainly an, an encouraging sign for the future. In terms of the kind of messages that we can take from this, I mean, you talked about that kind of the goodwill and we've seen a lot of that too, even from the medical professionals, many of them that have even come home from abroad, many people who've come back into the workforce and many people working in some areas of the um, the health sector that have, you know, been redeployed and have, and have very willingly put their hands up to do that, uh, to work on the front line. I mean, you know, we often hear about maybe very negative stories, Brian, within the health service, but I think a lot has maybe changed in the past seven to eight weeks. Absolutely. And so that's one thing that we need to bear in mind that generally speaking, the, the bad news stories tend to, to kind of uh, feature more prominently than the good news stories. The good news stories seem to kind of go a little bit under the radar. And, you know, even prior to COVID-19, there were so many good news stories in the health system uh, in Ireland anyway that we just didn't hear about. And I think, as you say, they, they've now come to the fore in the last number of weeks. Uh, and I think it's no harm because uh, just from the point of view of the, the people working in the public health system in Ireland in particular, uh, I suppose, you know, it just putting myself in their shoes to, to, to a certain extent, uh, it, it must be quite demoralising to hear so many bad news stories about the, the, the place where you work, um, even though you know yourself that there are so many good news stories. So hopefully this will, will kind of uh, improve morale in, the, uh, in the, the public health system as well uh, and, and you know, shine a light, as it were, on the, the good news stories and the positive aspects of that. One of the things that a lot of people are talking about, even anecdotally, Brian, that, you know, may not necessarily follow medical economics on a fairly regular basis. But how are we going to pay for all of this? Well, that's the, that, that, that's the, the, the big question, I suppose. Now, in the short term, we have the, the additional release of bonds uh, by the, the government. And the, at the European level, there is the, uh, the bond buying programme as well. So uh, we are getting finance at very low interest rates at the moment. So th- th- that is encouraging. Um, and I suppose th- because this is a global issue, uh, I think we will find ourselves in a slightly different position this time around than we did 10 years ago, let's say, when we ended up uh, having to bring on all these austerity measures in order to pay for the um, the, the bailout of the banks. So this time around, I suspect that uh, you know we, we won't necessarily have the same austerity. No, that's not to say that we won't see some belt tightening because obviously the, the money that we're borrowing at the moment will have to be paid back. But I think there's there's going to be globally uh, a slightly more sanguine approach taken to the, 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 the paying down of that debt. So you know we, we will probably see an increase in, in government debt uh, in the short to medium term, but I, I'd say that would probably be accepted uh, more so than it was last time around. There were some reports earlier this week, Brian, about the number of nurses currently operating or working across the country who still haven't received a back payment or a payment that was announced to pay rise effectively that they were to get in terms of allowances. I mean, I think some people were sort of quite surprised to hear that, given that we've been there's been so much talk about the uh, the frontline heroes, you know, in, in recent weeks. 
Yeah, and, and I suspect that, that what's happening at the moment will, will probably help to, to alleviate that situation because I think the, you know, the entire country and not just the, 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 um, the, the senior management in the HSE are seeing now the value of those nurses and of those frontline uh, healthcare workers. So uh, I suspect if there is an issue still outstanding on that, then it, it would probably be resolved uh, pretty quickly once this is all over. But by way of comparison, how are we faring out, Brian, in relation to, for instance, other EU countries and the sort of measures that they're taking from a health perspective to try and alleviate the pressures in hospitals during this pandemic? Well, interestingly, before the wave hit us, so to speak, there was a lot of concern about the capacity of our health system to deal with the, the number of cases coming down the tracks. Now, so far, we haven't seen the hospital system being overwhelmed, which is great. Uh, now, I know part of that is because you know we, we introduced lockdown measures and, and in fairness, people are very good about adhering to those. So, you know, I think we, we've avoided a situation where our, our hospitals have become overwhelmed, which was the worry beforehand, because in, in, in comparison with other European countries, uh, our hospital system uh, has relatively less capacity per capita than many other European countries. So that was a concern before the, uh, the, the, the pandemic really kind of peaked. And, and so far, we've, we seem to have been able to deal with that quite well, which is, which is good. Can I ask you about the one area maybe that we haven't touched on at the moment, and that's in the area of kind of the long-term care, residential and nursing home settings. And while we haven't, Brian, had the uh, the so-called peak that was feared, which is a good thing, in the um, in the public and community area, we do seem to have had a much a greater rise in cases of COVID-19 and the likes of the, the nursing homes and long care facilities. Is there an argument to be made now about um, looking at the provision of public nursing home facilities across the country, whether that needs to be increased or to perhaps copy a similar model to the way we're operating the hospitals in terms of the um, public-private takeover? I think yeah, th- th- there probably will be a debate about that, uh, what, again, once the, the dust has settled after all of this. I, I suspect the debate might also uh, include discussion of you know, whether or not we can keep more people at home and um, you know, by increasing the, the, the home care packages. Could we keep more people at home and not have them to go into to nursing homes? And obviously, it's it's not going to to, to be suitable for everybody uh, because some people will need the, the full time care that that they get in nursing homes. But we might see more of an increase in measures to, to try and keep people out of nursing homes in the first place. So I think that that could be part of that debate as well. And is that part of the solution? I suppose in many ways we, we talk time and time again about those um, uh, the the deals the the fair deal scheme to keep people at in their own home setting. Is is that the answer? Answer to this? Well, again, I think under slide care and under the, the health service capacity review, that was one of the, the issues that, that that was flagged as well. And I think there was over a doubling of um, uh, home health hours and, and home care packages envisaged under the, the health service capacity review. So uh, that was one of the largest increases on a percentage basis uh, of any of the, um, the the forms of care. So I think definitely that 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 has been on people's minds uh, for some time. And I think this this what's happening at the moment now is, is probably focusing people's minds even more so on that. Brian Turner, lecturer in health economics at UCC. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're very welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion, asking how general practice and the medical and health sector might change or look into the future post-COVID-19. Well, joining me on the line now to discuss is uh, medical journalist June Shannon uh, and also works with the Irish Heart Foundation. June, just first of all, some um, fairly unprecedented changes have taken place right across the uh, whole medical sector over the past two months, really. Yes, um, Andrea, it's... uh 
it really has kind of come come across the changes have come have happened very very quickly, and they've also been um, you know some of the stuff that's happened has been actually very positive um, in the in the midst of this awful pandemic, which is um, you know just decimating lives, um, which is just heartbreaking. It's, it, there are some practices in medicine, in particular in the health service. Uh, which have changed um, completely and actually are adding value. So things like, for example, uh, one, I was talking to one GP yesterday who told me that general practice for her has been a 360-degree change um, with patients being triaged over the phone or video calls. So video consultations have really come into their own since the start of this pandemic. And why is that? Just, I mean, concern that people have or is it fear of actually going into the surgery? Um, I think what happened initially and, and still is in place is that patients are being asked not to go to their GP, to, but to phone instead. So you phone your GP um, and then you're triaged over the phone. I suppose it's just they didn't want to be inundated, obviously, with patients who have symptoms of COVID. It's all about protecting the patients and protecting the GP and the GP staff, because the healthcare staff, as you know, have really been hit with this badly. So they're very, they're a very precious resource. Mm-hmm. And as are patients and older patients, etc. So it's all about protecting patients and protecting uh, general practice, protecting general patient staff, because you know receptionists are still there, etc. And um, so, as an effort to protect everybody, really, uh, video calls and phoning in advance has been recommended. So, you know, for example, a patient would phone, and then they'd be spoken to over the phone, either a phone consultation, triage over the phone or a video consultation. And if on that, after that consultation, the patient needs to come in, they're told they're given an appointment, they're told to wait in the car, in the car park, and then they're brought into the surgery. And depending on what's wrong with them, so for example, if they're met with by the GP in PPE, so if it's a respiratory condition, then it's obviously full PPE. Anything else, it's kind of masks and, and mini PPE, if you like. Um, and they're seen quickly because the whole social distancing is kept within the consultation room. It's all about uh, seeing the patient in as short a time as possible. But the beauty of the phone call and the, or the video consultation beforehand shows that the patient's history has been taken by the GP. The patient knows the GP as well. The value of the long-term relationships GPs built up with their patients has really been seen in this. Um, and then once that is done, the, the patient can go home or, or be whatever happens next. Um, so it really has happened very quickly and video conferencing has come into its own in general practice. And, I mean, would people have concerns surrounding the likes of your GDPR or any, you know, pr- privacy or confidentiality issues or presumably that has already been teased out, June? Yeah, so GPs are using secure web apps or secure web video calling systems. They're not using the Zooms and those kinds of things at all. So it's very secure. Um, one GP told me as well that, you know, so there's no one in the waiting room. No one is sitting in waiting rooms, you know, with other patients. Mm. Um, it also means that, for example, you know, we're all very, you know, busy at home and trying to do a million and one things at once. And that, you know, GPs don't have these full waiting rooms of patients who need to get back to work or, need to, or, or you know, um, and the GP doesn't have the pressure of knowing there's five patients in the waiting room waiting to see them, that these patients are at home and can be called or video called. So okay. that pressure is taken off as well. Um, and also GPs, the main message I got from GPs and from everyone is that general practice is open. They want to see patients. You know, there is this fear, of course. First of all, there's two fears, I think. The fear that patients don't want to contract COVID-19, um, which is a genuine fear. But general practice is safe. It's extremely safe. Everything has been put in place to make sure 
that the patient is protected and staff are protected, but also they don't want to burden general practitioners. But that's not that shouldn't be something they should worry about. GPs have told me, you know, they're more than happy to take the calls. They're not too busy, and the one thing they would worry about is people not contacting them. Yeah, it's it's interesting, June, because I mean, obviously, you'd know through your your work with the likes of Sloan Care and the level of discussion when we constantly talk about reform of our health sector and the idea that we're you know we so many people going to the maybe the GP or their general practitioner um, on a regular basis unnecessarily or people presenting at emergency departments when they don't need to and people going to hospital again when they might not require that level of treatment and yet it sort of took this pandemic to try and diversify and you know redeploy services to other areas. Yeah, it has taken a pandemic, which is terrible. You know, it's it's just a unfortunate, but it's amazing. And as well, if you see what can be done in the face of this, and what can be done very very quickly, and um, that's what one that GP said to me as well is that you know we've been mooting these changes. Another one, for example, is the whole area of pharmacy. You know, pharmacists have been very crucial in this as well, um, and we've been mooting you know you know electronic prescriptions for a long long time. And then suddenly, almost overnight, the minister introduced new regulations that make it easier now for patients to access their medicines during the crisis. So, for example, you no longer need a paper prescription from your doctor. Uh, some prescriptions will be valid for nine instead of six months. Um, and you can also maybe get repeat, maybe repeat prescription with, without a new script from your doctor. So all these changes have taken place very quickly. And they put in place to make it easier for people to access their medicines. Now, they will be reviewed once the coronavirus pandemic is over. But um, I think some of this stuff is, is very, very good and should stay because pharmacists have also been crucial in this um, and it allows them to do a lot more than they did before. And it's interesting because I, even I remember, you know, consultation previously as well, June, around the idea of allowing the, um, distrib- not the distribution, but the, um, you know, the allowance of the likes of maybe repeat um, contraceptive pill prescriptions to be administered within pharmacies. And there was a lot of discussion around that, about the need for blood pressure, etc. and that kind of thing to be taken. I mean, mm-hmm. is now the time to look at these sort of potential changes where we can move certain services into other areas? I think definitely, but I think once, once I mean, obviously the most important thing is that the patient is safe and that, you know, that, that all the proper health checks have been taken um, and that these things are reviewed regularly, but, you know, for the patient's safety's sake. But yeah, I mean, these innovations are are really, really good. Some of them are working really, really well. Uh, and, you know, we, we need to keep uh, keep an eye on them and, and keep them in place if we can. Um, there's also, you know, some really good stuff happening in the acute sector. For example, I don't know if you saw that. There was um, a thing on, on, on Twitter as well about the drive-through warfarin clinic in Tala. Okay. So, isn't that, which, is, which is pretty cool. Uh, Professor Ronan Collins is a geriatrician and stroke physician in Tala. And I think it started in the master as well. I'm not 100% sure. I think it has. So, basically, it's just another show showing you what can be done. So, warfarin is a blood-sending drug. So it thins your blood and it's prescribed for people at risk of stroke or those with some heart conditions. Now, um, so people with war- on warfarin, is about a thousand patients, as far as I know, attending Tala Anticoagulation Clinic, which is a special clinic to make sure your blood isn't clotting. So they phone ahead and they can drive in, get a finger uh, tip blood test um, over the out of the car window, basically. Um, by nurses in PPE and the tests can be done and they can be phoned back then with their levels. So this is a very important service because if you are on warfarin and you don't get regularly monitored, now some Mm. patients need to be monitored more than others, then you are at risk of a stroke. 
Right. So, you know, this is a really important that, this, that these anticoagulation tests are done. Um, and in this way, again, patients don't have to come into the hospital because there is a fear of, of COVID-19 and contracting hospitals. And that's a, you know, fear a lot of people have. It's also very, very safe. And it also means that patients can be safely monitored as normal. Um, and again, you know, it, it's vital that if you do need your warfarin levels monitored that you get that done. I'm just interested, June, when we sort of pass this kind of pandemic period or certainly the the level of you know emergency that we've seen around it in the past number of weeks in terms of the kind of the pressure that was obviously anticipated within the hospitals is there political will out there now to try and make these kind of changes because obviously we've seen you know hugely unprecedented changes in the sense that there's been that kind of effective takeover of the private hospitals by public yeah i mean the whole the the, the, the private public hospital sector and the almost you know universal healthcare overnight um, you know, was was amazing to see for, for for me as someone who's always wanted Sonta Care to be implemented and, and to think that we could be treated based on our clinical need as opposed to our ability to pay, you know, has been amazing. Now, that's very, very stuck at the moment. It's still, you know, the, it's still negotiations with consultants, etc. So it's, it's not clear cut and there's a lot to be worked out there still. Um but, you know, some of the innovations that have happened over the last, I mean, some of them, as I said, overnight, but over a couple of weeks, has been mainly down to, I think, healthcare professionals themselves being innovative and saying, you know, what can we do here um, to, to protect ourselves, to protect our patients, number one, and obviously to protect healthcare staff because, you know, this is it's hitting healthcare staff quite badly. So healthcare professionals all over the country, in all walks of life, in hospital and general practice, have really stepped up to the place. So some of these innovations, I think, are very good and should be kept if possible. Um, the other people who've really stepped up is charities and NGOs. Mm. Um, so charities have seen a huge uh, drop in donations and incomes, unfortunately, um, over the last couple of weeks. And, and there are charities like the one I work for, the Irish Heart Foundation, in conjunction with HSC, has launched a new telephone support service for stroke patients who've recently discharged from hospital. So, yeah, as you know, there is a shortage of staff um, in community supports who would normally do this kind of work with stroke patients due to illness. Our staff have also been deployed into other areas to help tackle the pandemic. So, also stroke patients are being discharged perhaps earlier than usual, but they are clinically fit to be discharged. Um, so, the RHR Foundation has set up, in conjunction with the HSC Stroke Programme, a telephone support service which means that uh, trained and experienced staff and volunteers making regular calls to stroke patients who have been referred by an acute hospital stroke team to check on their health and well-being. Um, and they also find information advice about recovery from stroke and ensuring that patients' needs are being met. Um, so there's a lot, lot of those innovation happening around the country. And presumably as well, like this is something, June, that a lot of the other charity organisations are doing. Yeah, there's some really, really good charitable work out there. The Irish Cancer Society is doing some great work. They have a lot of their, their phone-in service. Um, you know, you can you can you can phone a helpline and get some help. Um, so there's great. Loads of charities are doing some amazing work. The also people obviously that's doing very good is Alone, a charity for older people. And um, they have a helpline in 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 place that people can phone because people who are cocooning are obviously finding this very difficult. Um, so lots of people like the Irish Cancer Society support line is available um, Monday to Thursday um, and Friday to Sunday. So if you um, are concerned, you can speak to the Irish Council Society nurse as well.
I'm just interested when you talk about the, you know, the, the reliance that we have on the community sector um, or the voluntary sector, June, and the fact that there has obviously been, I'm sure, quite a drop in the level of, of donations. I know even the Cancer Society had come up with their own, you know, innovative virtual um, day that they could do for donations on, on Daffodil Day. But mm. I mean, what's the long term impact now of the likes of the drop in, in that kind of community support? I, I mean, it, 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 without them, basically, it, this couldn't have happened. And I don't know what would have happened, to be honest with you. So without these charities stepping up and, and helping out with community supports, um, I think we would probably be in a very different place because community supports are, 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 are not as strong as they were due to re- redeployment of staff and also illness. So there is even likely post all of this going to be a long term impact in that sector? So the donations definitely are going to affect charities. It's, it's a very worrying time for charities. And, you know, I suppose it's a very worrying time for everybody and lots of people have lost their jobs and lots of people are worried and and scared and and that's very understandable. But yeah, charities who do some amazing work are going to be hit by this. Just looking at the kind of the overall issue surrounding COVID-19, June, and obviously you're working as a medical journalist, but I mean, in terms of the performance from the likes of the Department of Health, the Health Service Executive, the Health Minister, the government, in, in terms of how they're dealing with it, I mean, is it, what's your assessment of that? My assessment of it um, would be that I, I think the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Holland, is, is doing an excellent job. I think the Minister for Health is doing a very good job. I think the HSE, I think everyone is doing a good job. Now, having said that, there have obviously been difficulties. Testing was a huge issue um, at the start of this. Um, particularly at the start of testing, there was huge delays in getting tests back and that was very concerning for patients. Um, that's been ramped up now, so hopefully that will be better. Now, the thing is, we're not testing everybody. We're testing people in priority groups um, and people, obviously, who are symptomatic, or, but we are testing nursing home staff. Um, nursing homes have been very, very badly hit um, and that's a huge concern and there are lots of concerns around the nursing home issue. Um and, you know, so there there have been areas of concern, obviously. But overall, I think the one thing that's hit me is that this is new for everybody. No one has ever come across this before. It's a new virus, number one. It's a, it's, it's a pandemic. Um, none of us have lived through a pandemic like this before in our lifetimes. We're all learning as we go. Um, everything is changing every day. I mean, you know, if I interview someone today about something, they could say to me, look, this could change tomorrow. So we're all we're all learning every day. And that's why advice needs to be reviewed. We need to learn. One thing we say today, we need to learn, actually, you know what, that wasn't right. We need to do this now. So it, that's the one thing that's hit me about this, is it, it's all new and we're all learning. Um, and I think it's, it, it's, it's taking its toll on everybody. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see, I think, when you when you look at how the sector might change down the line, we constantly talk about the number of people when we get the INMO trolley figures out every single day about the numbers of people on trolleys. And it's actually incredible to look at the um, the, the daily you know publication that even still comes out about the, the I mean, they're, they're coming down in nearly single digits, the number of people on trolleys and how that has fallen yeah. so dramatically. And that would worry me, Andrea, because this means that people aren't attending. You know, this means that people are at home perhaps with symptoms that they're ignoring or, you know, dealing in with other ways, maybe taking, taking painkillers as opposed to going to see their GP or going to see a hospital doctor or going to A&E. 
you know, um, that is very worrying. The drop in, in, in attendees in A&E for me is a worrying thing. Um, so the big message here is that, you know, the health service is safe, it is protected and it is open for business. So, you know, if you do have a symptom or, or a worry, please phone your GP. Um, you know, and get it seen to. You know, if it's if it's not urgent, obviously it'll be it'll be dealt with. Um, but if it's urgent, it needs to be seen to because you're storing up problems in the future for your health. You're storing up, you know, long term difficulties mm-hmm. that could be nipped in the bud earlier. One of the things that interests me as well, Jean, is the fact that we've had the current suspension or the halting of so many of the various different types of even screening programmes. Even women, for instance, that I spoke to this week who were maybe due to get their, their um, smear test carried out, their cervical smear, and maybe the fact that was a, you know, a repeat from last year where there might have been some concern and yet there's now been a pushback. Now, I know, albeit there may be um, no major implications from that, but even just that level of worry and anxiety that comes from that there is some concern about how long we can kind of postpone the likes of these um screening programs and procedures that we carry out yeah i mean and that's something that will have to be looked at you know um i think you know all these screening things are, are screening programs are extremely important and you know they will have to be have to be looked at as a way of of of, of carrying out these services in a you know, in a safe manner. Um, and like we said before, I mean, the likelihood of a vaccine for this, for the coronavirus or COVID-19, won't be here for, I mean, another 18 months, I would suspect, at least. So we need to learn how to live in a world with it for the moment um, and be as safe as possible. There are other, other things that are that are vital, though, that are still going on and need to happen, such as vaccinations. You know, I would worry about, you know, a surge in measles, for example, in a few years' time and children or babies who aren't being vaccinated. So, you know, that's still happening. Vaccination is still being carried out. Um, you know, six-week checks on new babies, antenatal checks, all those things are still going on. Um, so these are things that people, you know, should attend for and it is safe to do so. June Shannon, who is a, a medical journalist and also working with the Irish Heart Foundation. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website or also you can get it online at uh, newstalk.com. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 